I'm not a cat person. I mean, sure, I like cats. They amuse me at a frequency oscillating somewhere between occasional and often. You know, some of them are even cute, I have to admit. In certain circumstances, I'll even concede that I'd rather own a cat than a dog. But folks, none of this makes me a cat person. I mean, to be so is to concede that cats are the dominant house pet. You know, certainly they exist above rodents on that ladder, as well as in the food chain, but given the choice between the two, I think I take the dog every time. And this is what's confusing me. See, through some serendipitous series of Google searches, I ended up with an episode entirely about cats. You know, the history of domestication is usually told from the perspective of the dog, at least on the reboot of Cosmos starring Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I encourage you to watch. Its transformation from hunter to house pet, the explosion of boutique breeding in settled societies, looking at you Brits, and uh, yielding dumb animals, and you know, I mean that in the happy sense, but also nonchalantly as a sort of dig aimed at pure breeding. Conventionally, it seems to me that the cat is cast aside. Perhaps historians, mostly, aren't cat people either. Except for the ones who are. And once you start reading their work, you realize that perhaps this dog-cat disparity wasn't always the way it is today. There was a time, I think, when the cat was king. When do you suppose was the best time to be a house cat? You know, have we now reached peak cat life? To lounge about day and night with your needs taken care of, enthused by the occasional mouse or more likely laser pointer, a growing collection of toys designed to arouse the cat's ancient stimulus of catching prey, one which we've all but retired from their job description nowadays. Or is this a societal low point for the cats? Was there once a time when cats were treated like royalty? Well, folks, if you're a cat, the very best time and place to live, I think, is ancient Egypt. And before I attempt to explain <laughs> such a ridiculous claim, I just want to briefly touch on how today's cats came to be. See, as early as 10,000 BC, Neolithic man was capturing and even taming wild cats. Now, our basis for this conjecture comes from graves particularly those that contain both human and cat remains. So it's probably because of some crazy cat person over 10,000 years ago insisting to be buried with their beloved cat that we have our models for early, early domestication. And after reading into this quite a bit, I'd say that we have rats and other vermin to thank for the cat's domestication. You know, there's no Tom without a Jerry or vice versa depending on which one's the cat. Hopefully you get my point. Honestly, I can't find another compelling reason for a Neolithic-era man to keep cats around. Indeed, this seems to be the most widely held interpretation in the literature. Because when we talk about 10,000 BC, we're talking about the Neolithic Revolution, about farming and the development of settled society. Well, all this agricultural produce sitting in one place would reliably attract rats, which in turn attracted the wild cats who loved to hunt them. 
So humans probably saw an advantage to having a few of these cats on hand as a sort of pest control detail. They ensured this, probably, by capturing kittens and raising them in their settlements. Now I say probably because we really just inferred this behavior from the few hunter-gatherer societies still operating today, you know, which is not quite Neolithic in style, but close enough. And these societies have been observed capturing and taming baby animals, not just cats, other things. Yet it's not until ancient Egypt that we see the cat attain fully domesticated status. The evidence is actually overwhelming. For instance, there's a picture of a cat confronting a rat in the tomb of Baquet III of Beni Hassan, dated to 1950 BC. And around 1400 BC, paintings like these became increasingly common in Egyptian tombs, sometimes even depicting the cat tethered to a chair or playing with fish bones, you know, lose the leash and you've got an excerpt from Tom and Jerry right there. And I promise that's the last time I'm going to make reference to that show. And there's also a few anecdotes which have come down through history, which hint at the Egyptians' cultural attitude towards cats. You know, one concerns this traveler from Rome who is, according to Diodorus, lynched after accidentally killing a cat while visiting a city in Egypt. You know, it seems a bit extreme, right? Of course, there's another tale which comes from the earliest and also most extravagant historian, Herodotus. He was dubbed by Roman contemporaries centuries later, so actually I guess technically not contemporaries, but near contemporaries in the historical context, as the father of history. Indeed, his only work dates back to the 5th century BC and is really the only primary source on most of the events it describes. So folks, if you don't have a copy of Herodotus's histories on hand, I mean, I highly suggest picking one up. It mostly documents the rise of the Persian Empire, but it does this so, as Dan Carlin puts it, colorfully. You know, one particular passage I enjoyed, and I'm entirely off topic here, I'll admit, entails this Lydian bodyguard, Gyges, who sees his queen naked. See, evidently the king was quite fond of her beauty, and after getting palsy with his bodyguard, tells him to sort of see for himself. So in perhaps the earliest recorded peeping Tom arrangement, the king has Gaiji's hide behind a door while he and the queen are changing into their night garments and getting ready for bed. The thing is, the queen catches on to this, and she does something rather devious. So she calls the bodyguard in the next day and presents him with this ultimatum, saying, There are two courses upon open to you, and you may take your choice between them. Kill Candulis, the king, and seize the throne with me as your wife, or die yourself on the spot, so that never again may your blind obedience to the king tempt you to see what you have no right to see. As you might expect, Gaiges chooses the former, kills the king, and becomes the new king. Anyways, <laughs> while Herodotus's writings on Egyptian culture may be a lot less racy than that, they do provide some detail on the unique regard for cats that they held. Here's an excerpt from the Desalincourt translation of his histories. What happens when a house catches fire is most extraordinary. Nobody takes the least trouble to put it out, for it is only the cats that matter. Everyone stands in a row, a little distance from his neighbor, trying to protect the cats, who nevertheless slip through the line or jump over it, and hurl themselves into the flame. This causes the Egyptians deep distress. 
All the inmates of a house where a cat has died a natural death shave their eyebrows. This isn't too dissimilar to how people might act in a fire today. You know, imagine perhaps to run back into a burning house to save a beloved family pet. But shaving the eyebrows? Well, like, I mean, I guess that's a creative implementation of grief. Still, what's important to note here is that the Egyptians care for their cat's well-being, beyond just an interest in keeping them alive for pest control. You know, this, this is the fully domesticatedness I'm talking about. If your house is burning down, and your possessions with it, some feral creature you use solely to keep the rats out ought to be similarly replaceable, don't you think? And we get an even more interesting account of this deference to the house cat from another Roman author writing around 160 AD. Now this author, Polyanus, 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 I'm going to go with Polyanus, was actually compiling a book on strategies and tactics for the then emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius. You know, it's got a bit on the Persians who preceded the Roman Empire, so naturally there's a good deal of interest in them from you know, Greek and Roman scholars. Herodotus was the big one, but Polyanus dedicated a portion of his stratagems, that was the name of this book, to them as well. And the two both make mention of this battle between Persia and Egypt on Egypt's front door of Pelusium. Here's how Polyanus describes it. When Cambyses attacked Pelusium, which guarded the entrance into Egypt, the Egyptians defended it with great resolution. They advanced formidable engines against the besiegers and hurled missiles, stones, and fire at them from their catapults. To counter this destructive barrage, Cambyses ranged before his front line dog, sheep, cats, ibises, and whatever other animals the Egyptians hold sacred. The Egyptians immediately stopped their operations out of fear of hurting the animals, which they hold in great veneration. Cambyses captured Pelusium and thereby opened up for himself the route into Egypt. Folks, according to Polyanus, the Persian general arranged just about every character from old MacDonald's farm in front of his army in order to trip up the Egyptian soldiers who would have to reconcile the risk of causing harm to their sacred animals with defending their state. Yet Herodotus doesn't make mention of this particular detail in his description of the battle, and he was doing his research over a half millennium closer to the actual event than Polyanus was, so it's safe to say that this animal hostage conundrum the Egyptians found themselves in probably never happened. And yet it's not entirely baseless of a claim either. See, Egyptians did liken animals to the earthly representatives of their gods. Thus, great respect was often showed towards them. James Serpell, an anthrozoologist from the University of Pennsylvania, sums this up pretty well. Quote, the belief system of the Egyptians often appear a little short of chaotic, with innumerable gods and goddesses, part human, part animal, merging, hybridizing, and diverging over time to produce a confusing array of bizarre and exotic deities. Most of these gods and their animal representatives originated in pre-dynastic times as tribal emblems or totems, which were then consolidated under the Egyptian state into a complex pantheon along the lines of those found in ancient Greece and Rome. So before 2000 BC, we don't really see much regard at all for the cat in Egypt. The first tie-in we get is perhaps the most complimentary one to the cat. 
I'm sure you've heard mention of Ra, or more formally, Ra Hakardi, the Egyptian sun god. He was once thought to take on the form of a cat at night to war with serpents. The animal likeness of Ra's nemesis, Apophis, or Apep. This is a reasonable connection for a superstitious ancient peoples to make. At the time, it was not uncommon to see pre-domesticated wildcats fighting cobras and their like. So if the snake represents the Lord of Chaos, it makes sense to conclude that the cat fighting him represents his eternal opposer, the sun god Ra. Later on, the cat got a goddess of its own. <laughs> there were actually two. Paquette, who was likened more to a powerful lioness, and Bastet, who is unequivocally recognized in artwork as a present-day cat, or I guess a woman with a present-day cat's head. And it's thanks to these goddesses that we have the largest and most appalling cat graveyard ever discovered. Remember, the Egyptians took their religion very seriously, particularly the life after death component of it. You know, pharaohs being buried with every treasure under the sun so they could continue to live in prosperity in the afterlife. And so it was with grave seriousness that the Egyptian peoples would sometimes make offerings to their gods. Now, folks, if you're a cat person, you might want to stop listening, because what I'm about to describe entails tons of dead cats. See, their cat-like goddess, Paquette, that I mentioned earlier, had a temple dedicated to her. And not too far from this temple was a cemetery called Beni Hassan. When travelers passed by this temple, they'd sometimes leave a gift for Paquette. And since she was a cat goddess, these imaginative Egyptians saw fit to give her a mummified cat as a gift. Their thinking was the cat's soul would go up to the afterlife and join Paquette, you know, maybe whisper in her ear, I am a gift from so-and-so who lives just west of Memphis. Then Paquette nods and says back, then I shall bring so-and-so good fortune. Now the thing about Beni Hassan is it was on a well-traveled road between two Egyptian cities, so a lot of people passed by every week. It's probably safe to say a good deal of them wanted to commune and give Paquette an offering. Now what you have here, folks, is the perfect storm for a tourist trap. Hundreds of people passing by who would leave an offering to the cat goddess if only they had a mummified cat on hand, you know, kind of hard to come by. So some enterprising local merchants spin off a little cat mummy enterprise, but they cut corners. You know, it's a, it's a bit like a rabbit's paw keychain. You think they're waiting until happy bunnies grow old and die of natural causes before they saw their foot off and embalm it for good luck? Well, I doubt it. So what these cat peddlers start doing is they use kittens instead of full-grown cats and then add some fluff during the mummification process so that they look like a mummified adult cat. Sometimes they actually even skip the cat part entirely. And we know this because in the 1800s, a farmer stumbled upon the tomb where all these mummified cats were kept. It caused quite a stir. You know, all the locals descended on Beni Hassan, hoping to find gold and jewels and amulets. You know, typical mummy stuff you'd expect. So you can imagine they're disappointment 
when they discovered 19 tons of mummified cat remains instead. Most of these remains were actually purchased by an enterprising British man who had them shipped back to the UK and turned into fertilizer. So I guess technically these kittens who met their untimely demise millennia ago were finally laid to rest in a sort of scattered ashes sort of way all across the British Empire. So maybe I was wrong to say that Egypt was the best place to be a cat. On one hand, they were shown great respect, but on the other, they were murdered en masse in the name of religious sacrifice, with the remains given to the very goddess who commanded a respect for cats in the first place. Certainly a bit ironic, don't you think? 